Now on Sports Talk, it's SC Wild with Major Billy Downer of the Department of Natural Resources. Major Downer is here to take your questions about the great outdoors in South Carolina. Give him a call at 888-898-2525. It's SC Wild from DNR on the Sports Talk Radio Network. Okay, always great to have Major Billy Downer from the Department of National Resources with us. Another edition of SC Wild from DNR here on Sports Talk on the Sports Talk Media Network. First time with the Major since the Thanksgiving holiday. So we wish, uh, hope that he had a great uh, holiday with the family and the friends and the newcomer and cooked some good turkey and just. It just had a lot of fun in the great outdoors. And he's got a special guest tonight, Major. Welcome in. Great to have you with us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's still duck season. No, yeah. That's it, Phil. Yeah, we're still in duck season. So, yes, we have a special guest tonight. Molly Neese is joining us again. She is a state waterfowl project leader, lives down on the coast. Molly, thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, Major Downer, appreciate y'all having me on today. Good. So we're going to do, uh, since the first season, the Thanksgiving season's over, we're getting ready to start the second season here pretty strong. Want to give a report to folks that may be wondering what uh, our waterfowl outlook was for the first season as far as our Category 1 areas. Remember, again, there are two types of hunting areas with DNR. There's Category 1, which are what we call our draw hunts. Typically, you have to put in uh, back in the September to October freight uh, 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 time period, and when it opens and you pay a fee and you pay for a few years and then you get you, you, to get your points, and you get drawn after a few years typically when your points build up to where you're, you're selected at the top of the pool. Uh, and then we have our Category 2 areas, which are walk-in basically, first come, first serve. Our Category 1 areas this year, uh, it's been interesting to look at some of the numbers and where – uh, ducks were the top of the deal at 5.3 ducks per man. I know you love that, Phil, 5.3. What does a .3 duck look like? I'm not <laughs> sure. But 5.3 ducks per man, Murphy Island led the way. Um, Murphy Island had, uh, for more, more than anything else, we, we were looking at probably looks like Gabwall was number one duck in the bag, followed by Greenwing Teal and then American Widgeon, no ball paint, uh, in third place. In second place, at 5.2 ducks per man, interestingly enough, uh, Bear Island Springfield cut came back. Uh, I, we've talked about that area. It was really good. It kind of had gone down. This year, number two area the first couple weeks, uh, a lot of quality ducks there. 36, you know, the top duck was green-winged teal. The number two duck, interestingly enough, was the northern pintail. So pintails were number two at Springfield Cut. And that's always going to get somebody's attention. That's at Bear Island. And then in number three, tied model ducks uh, and blue-winged teal. So model duck number is very high there as well. Um, and that's second place. And then our third place uh, winner basically at 5.1 ducks per man we had a, uh, you know, basically that's going to be the Kate. Uh, 5.1 Kate came in third. Their top duck in the bag again uh, was very simply, um, uh, pardon me while I read my numbers, I was getting off mm-hmm. for a second. But the, the, the numbers here, looks like Gadwall again. Gadwall were, were number one again there. 
uh, followed closely by blue wing teal and green wing teal. So interestingly enough, there blue wing and green wing uh, blue wing teal, excuse me, and a northern shoveler rounded us out. The shoveler rounded us out. So blue wing teal, interestingly enough, probably because it's still early season, while blue wings are still around, typically they're going to move out uh, and maybe go further south. But that's our one, two, and three. Number one again, Murphy Island, uh, Santee Coastal. Number two was Springfield Cut at Bear Island. Number three was uh, the Cape, uh, also at Santee Coastal Reserve. So uh, that's the old Santee Gun Club. Uh, so those are the top three areas. Uh, other areas fared very, very well also. And Molly, tonight, what I really wanted to get a look at is just you know highlight again. Our waterfowl areas, so many people don't understand the amount of work that goes into these areas. And I, I, I can't harp enough, particularly the coastal areas where you're dealing with um, tides, king tides, where it just floods over the top of the tides when you get a flood like we had. And even when you don't have that big 2015 flood, there's just sometimes the environment just creates the perfect storm and we get that king tide or a heavy tide pushes in and it'll break a dike and then you've got salt water in impoundment. Tell us about what that does to those waterfowl impoundments, Molly. What, what does salt water do in there? Yeah, you know, salt water can really change your, your management regime, really the types of plants and various things that you're managing for, natural foods that waterfowl are, are going to eat here in the coastal area. So, uh, so more salt can really, uh, can really change you from, an environment where you're targeting, you know, smart weeds and beneficial wild millets and things to where those type plants don't ruin there anymore. And so you're kind of having to manipulate your water levels more to really target widging grass, the wolf spike rush, and other 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 rushes and things that really, uh, you know, produce seed, but also produce a lot of small bugs and vertebrates, as we like to call them, that are really high-protein sources, really beneficial for ducks, and uh, really highly sought after, too. So... You know, a lot of water and too much water can really, really change the, the target plant community that you're going for when you're when you're managing for for habitat for waterfowl. So, um, lots of things that that salt will do for you. So, but those tides too can be really problematic when it comes to to managing your water control structures and your dikes, which you know keep your water in certain places and and or, and uh, in impoundments and and separated from the river. So, can cause us a lot of problems. So. So let, let's talk historically for a minute. So most of our impoundments that we're managing, correct if I'm wrong, are old rice impoundments. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Historically, these places so, were, were places that were grown in rice in the 17, 1800s. Correct. So we're talking about the Carolina rice, Carolina gold, whatever you want to call it, that rice crop that was grown here. Um, and so you, you, you drain those fields off, you throw the rice out, in the mud, the rice begins to grow, and eventually you can flood that rice um, and, you know, manage out the weeds basically with water uh, was how That's they right. did that. So let's talk just reality for a minute for folks that may not know this. Is there any rice left? You know, there's there's very few places. There's, there's a handful out there that are growing, uh, growing rice along the coast for uh, for kind of a novelty of it or some specialty rices like you mentioned the carolina gold real real really good rice that they eat ducks like them as well but you know the places that we can really grow rice um in the carolinas anymore is, is pretty minimal you know um partially because of saltwater intrusion and then the other part is just you know 
our uh, our mud, if you've hunted Santee Coastal Reserve or Bear Island, you know they're pretty tough, pretty unforgiving environments to really navigate on foot. So, you know, growing rice in those type areas, if, if salt wasn't still an issue, it was really a challenging environment. So it really takes a specialized piece of property um, to be able to grow rice anymore. So it does still occur on a small a small set of, of tidal wetlands in South Carolina, but uh, but nothing like we experienced, you know, in the, in the heyday of rice culture in South Carolina. So. Sure. Is, so is there any variety of wild rice that grows in our impoundment still? Yeah, you know, there's in some tidal areas, you'll see a, a southern wild rice that grows, um, grows in our tidal areas. And But, you know, by the time we get to duck season, usually what wild rice is produced on those plants has usually been picked off by by blackbirds and those little birds that are foraging through. So there's typically not even a lot of wild rice that's really, uh, really, really prevalent in South Carolina anymore. That that's at a high enough level that's beneficial for waterfowl. That's why I asked that. I need, so let's talk about. So our fields that we manage, we do a combination of some um, wetland management or uh, or moist soil management, where we're managing, like you said, smart weed, um, spike rush, uh, widgeon grass, those kind of things. Then there's the fields that we drain off, we dry out, we actually plant row crop and then flood, correct? Exactly. Yep, yep. So 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 multiple. So what kind of row crops do we plant? You know, you'll see what kind um, of row crops? you'll see corn planted in some spots on our WMAs. Um planted uh planted millets are pretty popular. And uh in some places you'll even see us plant some chufa, you know, just uh uh, you know, some of us like to call it nut grass, but a chufa really produces a nice, uh, a nice small tuber that grows underground. That's really, uh, really a popular food for, for ducks here in the southeast. So. Absolutely. So, when we go to the majority of our coastal impoundments, most of those are probably more soil um, and involve a lot of manipulation, uh, widgeon grass, things like that. They don't grow well in salt water. Yes or no? Yes, widgeon grass you're going to find really at Bear Island and Santee Coastal Reserve. So places where we've got a little bit of salinity to the water, um, a little bit of salt there, and uh, we can we can manipulate water. You know, really really circulate water within impoundments is really good good for uh, propagating widgeon grass. So you want a little bit of a little bit of moving water um, and a little bit of salt is a great is a great spot for uh, for widgeon grass growth. So let me let me highlight something else that people don't know. How do we manipulate water in our coastal impoundments? What do we use? Oh, oh man, rice trunks, you know, which we use during the rice culture <laughs> area are, are still used today. They're excellent tools. Um, you know, it's a little quick quick snippet for you for how those structures work. That's essentially a wooden box that runs underneath the earthen structure that we call the dike or the levee. And on either side of that structure, it's got it's got two gates, two doors that we can raise and lower. And so uh, if we want to put water in an impoundment, we'll crack that door open on the river side of that structure, and it'll push through as the water comes up on high tide and push into the impoundment. As the tide goes falls back out on the river side, the water pressure from the inside of the impoundment pushes that inside door closed to hold that water in the impoundment. And so we can flip that around. We want to take water off. And so, uh, you know, this is a, a water control structure that's been used for hundreds and hundreds of years, and uh, we still use them today. That's what I want to talk about. I don't think people realize that we are using several hundred-year-old technology to move water, and it still works. And when they break, we rebuild them, don't we, Molly? That's right. That's right. We've got and a we number have, of DNR we have staff. Very few, 
people that know how to do that. That's right. There's a, a handful of DNR staff that are really, really good at building those structures and a handful of uh, of private uh, private property managers that, that build their own structures as well. So really specialized um, pieces of equipment. And, you know, it takes a takes a really good carpenter to build you a really good rice trunk. And it's designed for a tidal environment, and there's not any other structure out there that works for tidal environments the way rice trunks do. Isn't that correct? That's correct. That's correct. So when people ask, why don't you use a just a riser like you do in a pond? Well, that doesn't work when you got tides because you got to have something to pull that door back shut. And, and that that's right. rice trunk is designed to float with the tide. And as it goes out, it closes the trunk and doesn't let the water back out. So exactly. the water goes in, but water doesn't come out. So I, I wanted to highlight that for a moment. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, but I just think so many people don't realize the intricacies of these old uh, rice dikes, these old impoundments. The mud that we're using, <laughs> that these dikes are built with, has stayed, you know, hundreds of years of floods. But we're pulling this old mud out of ditches that really doesn't have a whole lot of substance and washes away if you get a rain at the wrong time. Is that right? That's right. You know, big uh, big rain events and big tides have caused us uh, a number of issues um, in certain parts of uh, certain parts along the coast. You know, with our our dikes and our trunks in recent years, and and um, you know we're doing our best to to put those back together to where we can really manage uh, manage these places well. But it takes a, a really specialized skill set. You know, specialized skill to build trunks, and specialized skill skill to install them, and even uh, even equipment operators, you know, to really recognize good good mud, good good earthen material to really make sure we get these structures back in the right places so they have a lot of longevity to them. I, I know, for example, there's one particular dike I think we've rebuilt almost every year for the last four or five years. That's right. Uh, but, yeah, right. I mean, it, we, we've rebuilt it, and it, but and then there's a tidal event that comes through or a rain event. It's like, holy cow. It's just like everything's against you. Um, and I know you've been – you're really familiar with Samworth. Samworth has been a topic, folks, that may remember Samworth from years back. We haven't hunted Samworth in a number of years, and this year for the first time we're actually going to hold some hunts there um, yeah. because of a lot of good work that's been done. Tell us about the yeah, work that you've done there. Yeah, we're back on the hunt schedule for the. Um, we've been off and on, but more off than since uh, than on since 2015. So really excited to, to see that property hunted again. Um, there's been a ton of of uh, infrastructure work, as we like to call it. So a lot of work to the dikes and the and the water control structures, which is really the key to us managing good habitat. So um, if you can't control your water, uh, major downer, you, you know, you, as you know, you can't really grow duck food. So that's an important, no. important part of the puzzle, but we've done a lot of work there. Um, our staff has put in a tremendous amount of time, tremendous amount of effort of repairing dikes and water control structures, uh, ourselves. We've also partnered, um, with Ducks Unlimited and have secured some national coastal wetland grants and, uh, some NALCA money. So some, um, some grant funds there to really rehabilitate about half of the property. So, uh, so some, some of the larger wetlands have been rehabilitated and really intensively managed here in the past year and a half. So we really got a lot of beneficial millets and smart weeds um, and other, uh, other good moist soil plants that are really beneficial for waterfowl forage and even for refuge um, back up and uh, really, really looking good on the property. So we're excited to see, uh, 
see improved habitat conditions for uh, for the public hunter, you know, that may hunt the impoundments or may hunt just adjacent to them in the, in the, uh, in the rivers there. So a lot of good stuff going on and really, really excited to see what happens there this season. Absolutely. So uh, one of the things we haven't talked about, we talked about good plants. Let's talk about bad plants. What are some of the challenges in the coastal environment? I'm going I'm to bring up two words that are probably the bane of your existence. White oh, no, not, not that word. What is it? White marsh. What is it? White marsh. White marsh. A giant hmm. cut grass is what, what some people will call it. So um, environments that you'll see, uh, you see this white marsh or giant cut grass grow. If, if you've ever walked through the marsh in a really tall, thick grass, and uh, it's just, it's a, uh, it's 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 really sharp edges, you know. It's 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 true to his name with cut grass, as you you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, sometimes great to hide a hunter in, but it's not really good duck habitat. Doesn't really provide any forage value for a duck, and it's so dense. Ducks don't really even like to get in it to hide, and so you'll get uh, white alligators like to hide in it, Phil. Hmm. They do. Alligators do like to hide in it. Yes, they do. So. Uh, so you'll see white marsh in some of these impoundments, some of these tidal impoundments to where we just can't quite get the water low enough um, during the growing season. So white marsh is a plant that we call uh, anaerobic, which is just a fancy word that means it likes to grow in low oxygen conditions. So um, so if you've got water saturated on a, on a field bed, um, you know, you've got low oxygen conditions, which promotes white marsh and really makes it challenging to grow our more beneficial plants that ducks like to eat. And so um, where that problem comes in is when we can't get water levels low enough on a field um, to really to really knock that white marsh back. And, and a lot of those problems come when you can't get uh, a field low, water levels low enough on a field. You know, you walk around that field as a manager and you say, all right, do I have, a, do I have a, an issue with my dikes where I got water leaking through my dikes? Or do I have an issue where I've got a water control structure leaking, such as a trunk? And so, um, so usually that's, that's your best case scenario is that you got an infrastructure problem that you can come in and fix. Your worst case scenario with some of what we're experiencing, um, on Samworth and then private properties all around Samworth on the Waccamaw PD River system, you know, what we're really seeing in tide gauges, um, on the East Coast, really, if you look specifically from, from Georgia up to Beaufort, North Carolina, we're really seeing since 2007 an average increase of 10 millimeters of water, sea level rise a year um, throughout that, that section of the Atlantic. So if you kind of think, well, how much is 10 millimeters a year? If you think about um, since 2007 when we really started looking hard at that data, that's an increase in, in sea level um, in our area, specifically in the Waccamaw PD, of, of about six and a quarter inches um, of extra mm -hmm. water. Um, and so, so Billy, when we're thinking about, you know, low tide is really, really important when we talk about managing uh, for white marsh because low tide allows those trunks to really pull adequate water off of those fields. And, um, you know, if you got a tide, a low tide that's six and a half, almost inches higher um, over the past 16 years than, than what we're historically used to, you know, it really makes it challenging to, to pull off adequate water to, to reduce our density of white marsh. And so... But um, there's some things we can do to combat that. And those things have been going on at Samworth here for about the past three or four years. Where we're going back in and we're we're reinstalling some historic drainage within the fields called quarter drains. Um, that term goes all the way back to the rice culture era. And so it's just small ditches that are installed throughout the uh, throughout the field bed that really helps us kind of pull more water off that field. And so doing a lot. Phil, let me go ahead and tell you: if you're walking across one of these waterfowl pounds with duck hunting. You better yeah. on the coast. You better 
have a paddle, a stick, because if you hit a quarter drain, you're done. You will go down, your hat. and you may not you may not come back up. <laughs> That's right. A quarter drain is that much she's talking about. If you step in it, yeah, you float your hat, and you may stick and have to pull. I've, I've had to sit there and beg somebody to come back to me to pull it, me out of it. it, it is, they're terrible. Is that like quicksand, like we used to see in the Tarzan <laughs> movies, quicksand? Yeah, it's as bad as quicksand ever thought about being. It is it's just <laughs> plus mud. It is muck. It smells. And when you step in it and you get into a quarter drain and you didn't know it was coming, that's why I always take a paddle in front of me and push, push, push. That's right. Thing, you feel that quarter drain. But if you don't and you hit that quarter drain at a full gate, you're going mm. down. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. It makes for a great funny memory, but it's not very funny at the time. But anyway. That's right. I, I digress. Right. Go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. So, White Marsh, we're working on that. A lot of things, herbicides, burning, all kind of things. I know that you're doing water levels to try to control that. I, I think, to me, one of the highlights of what happens when we do fix dikes, Springfield Cut was open for, what, a year or two? And now look at where it's at this year. It's the number two area in the state. That's right. This, That's right, first yeah. season. So, and, and they had a, br- a breach in the dike for the last couple of years they kept having to deal with, I think I'm right. So yeah, took a took a big breach during Hurricane Matthew in 2016, and really kind of kind of changed the dynamics of that portion of uh, of Bear Island. But it's it's great to see that coming back. You know, we've really had a good a good showing for our lottery hunt sites. Um, during the first split, you know, I, I don't think uh, I don't think Major Downer, I don't think most people realize the significance of a of harvest averages that high. You know, most most places public land harvest averages are average closer to two across the nation. So five is really, Absolutely. really significant. So, I mean, it's over five. That means most people, a lot of people got the limit, got six. Right. With um, one box you of You get 5.3. Those, yeah, those three tenths, Bill, that three tenths of a duck means that somebody was getting six ducks. <laughs> That's right. Before we got that three That's tenths right. of a duck. So, uh, Phil's always had funny, fun asking me, what's well, the 4.4 4 duck look like? I've well, always thought the percentage it's a wing and of the – It's a wing and a leg. Well, I, I've always thought the percentage of the duck was what was left after your buckshot hit it, you know, and took it down. No buckshot, Phil. We don't use buckshot. That would be a lead shot. That would be illegal. Mm. Plus buckshot would be overkill for the ducks. That we, we don't, that's that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I understand that. Yes, I understand that. Right. Yeah. But um, so we got a few, like a minute, maybe two minutes left. Molly, what message would you like us to, to to leave with tonight about our waterfowl projects across the state? For those who no, may not know, absolutely. So yeah, a lot of a lot of effort as always, you know, to really produce the the best quality habitat that we can. And we've got a lot of exciting stuff that has gone on over the past year to two years with a lot of our really big. Uh, lottery hunt properties where we we've, we've got you know millions of dollars invested in some of these properties with uh with uh with wetlands grants and other things in cooperation with ducks unlimited so we're really doing everything we can to really produce the best habitat that we can to provide good opportunities for um those on our lottery hunts and then our public land hunters that hunt waterways and, and other parts of our wma so as category ones and category twos are really important for us and i hunt them myself you know I uh, I look forward to my my lottery Me too. for a few years and and um I enjoy those category twos and our other public land opportunities as well so so really looking category forward to the one, season that's coming. Absolutely, category one so popular we had just short 
of 5,000 people put in, 4,911 mm. people put in. That's incredible that many people put in um, for our lottery hunts. I just, uh, that's just a really incredible. And 1,022 people got selected. So it used to be in the old days, three times, you put in for three years, you get drawn. Now it's pretty much your fifth year if you're real selective. I checked on okay. that and looked at that. The folks that want to know about that, you know, you have to get your preference points, which means the years you don't get drawn. So don't give up. Keep putting in um, that fourth or fifth year. You're going to get drawn probably, and you'll have a great hunt. Uh, again, thanks, Molly, for being a part of tonight's show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Major. Fantastic job. And thank you, Molly. Great stuff. That'll do it for tonight. Thank you for listening to Sports Talk. Thank you for listening to S.C. Wild from DNR. And we'll see you tomorrow night.